Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ or Jay talking live, midnight to five. That's right, there's really somebody here, which is pretty cool. Tonight, we look at the incredible true story of how a radio station, politics, and rock and roll changed everything. This is about the film, WBCN, and the American Revolution. And tonight, our guest is the person who made that film, Bill Lichtenstein. How do you do, Bill? Good evening. How are you? Thanks I am great. Me. I'm so thrilled to have you here. You you visited with me here. some time back, but now your film is done, and it is winning awards, and there's a big event on Saturday night, uh, the 27th, correct? Tell me about that. Yep, Boston premiere of, uh, of the documentary, and it's the centerpiece spotlight uh, film of the uh, Independent Film Festival of Boston at the uh, Somerville Theater at 730 uh, this coming Saturday night. So you're going to show the film, and I, you showed me a little bit of it before yep. this. It's spectacular. I love it. It's the, the footage you have of early Boston is killer. What else goes on besides the airing of the film at the Somerville Theater on Saturday the 27th? Well, as happens uh, you know, a lot with festivals, uh, uh, I will be there as a director, but also many of the people from WBC and the original announcers and staff who are in the film will be there. Uh, to answer questions, Robin, Robin Young uh, will be moderating the discussion and will be there for a half hour, 45 minutes after the film uh, to answer questions and to talk about uh, the history of WBCN and its, uh, its um, ongoing impact. So, Bill, we have the luxury of time, so I get to ask you about things like your involvement with filmmaking. You have a long, long history with filmmaking. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, you know, my first love was radio, and I worked starting at the age of 14 at WBCN, first volunteering, and then ended up on the air, uh, and then worked for ABC News for a number of years, where I learned about putting a picture to sound, and um, and then have been working on films, you know, since then. But how, really, how did you get the gig at NBC News? At ABC? ABC News. Um, I was uh, recruited out of Columbia Journalism with a woman named Amy Antelis, who's now the uh, head of documentaries for CNN, who's had a spectacular career. The two of us were uh, uh, schlepped in 2020, just got on the air, and they were looking for some young journalism students who could help do research on investigative stories. So you were 14, and you got the gig on the listener line at BCN, and then you uh, went through high school, and then I guess you went off to college about four years later right. at Columbia. Well, I went to Brown and then Columbia Journalism, okay. graduate school for my oh, master's. Okay was there for a year and then ended up at ABC uh, for about seven years. And I, I, 
Continue, and from time to time, if I need clarification on something, I'll interrupt. Okay, so the uh, this Columbia Film School. Take it from there. So uh, the Columbia Journalism School, and I graduated, went to work for ABC News, and then interestingly, in the mid '80s, um, at that point, the only place that you could really uh, do television production were at the networks, the control rooms, and all of the uh, things you needed to do uh, fancy. Uh, you know, TV and video production were very expensive and were controlled by uh, the networks. But by the mid-'80s, the price of a lot of the equipment started to drop, and I ended up producing a show for ABC Television with Jimmy Breslin, the, the columnist, uh, called Jimmy Breslin's People. And we were producing it out of this sort of rundown building on the west side, which today I think is where they produce The Daily Show, in this little studio uh, with just a lot of thrown-together equipment, and it was the first time that you could actually go in and, and create your own uh, video productions without going through a network. And so at that point, I got the idea of starting my own company and doing my own productions. It was mid to late 80s, and, uh, and I've been doing it ever since. What are some of the productions? Um, we did a film called West 47th Street that followed uh, four people with serious mental illness over three years who were part of a, a program in New York that uh, aired on PBS's POV and won the Atlanta Film Festival, and it was all cinema verite, no interviews, and it really put a face on, on uh, you know, I think homelessness and some of the more chronically uh, chronic cases of mental illness, and showed that people can and do recover. Um, you know, did a lot of work for ABC News for Nightline for 2020. Uh, over the years, we produced a public radio series called The Infinite Mind. For about 10 years, that was on NPR stations that looked at the mind and mental health. So we've done sort of a broad range of stuff. But this was a story, that, this film was a story I had wanted to tell for a long time. In fact, you know, 50 years ago when I was at PCN, I was already collecting tapes of things that seemed, you know, like they would be important or interesting someday. And, um, and they were. And they were. <laughs> now we'll bring it back to this film, what you showed me on your iPhone there. And I appreciate that little uh, preview, uh, paints a picture of a context that it's important to understand if you're going to understand this film. 1968, it's the year after The Summer Love, 67, took about a year for that to get here, and it did, and it got here, it, uh, it landed on Boston Common in 1968, and you were a young lad of 13, I believe, yep. and you're watching or listening to the news, and it talked about these parasite-infested youth on the common, and you said, that sounds good to me, I'm going down there, and you did. Tell me that story. So before the internet, you know, the way you found out what was going on in the world, particularly if you were 10, 11, 12, first and foremost was Life Magazine. It would arrive every week, and on the cover would be some... So there was a series of articles in Life Magazine about the hippies, the summer of love, you know, what was going on in San Francisco, and all these bands, and but it was so far away and kind of abstracted. And suddenly, uh, in the summer of 67, 13 years old in Brookline, I turn on the TV, and there's an urgent news report that the hippies, who previously had largely been in San Francisco and New York, had arrived on the Boston Common. And there they were. And they had frisbees and folk guitars and long hair. And, and I, I literally just got up without telling my parents and got on the tea and, and went to the common to see for myself what was going on. And it was, you know, uh, like a carnival. It was, it was amazing. But th that's what really began in Boston, the, um, 
you know, I think the tension between the establishment and the counterculture, and uh, and and it sort of grew from there. So when you got to the common, how did that strike you? Did you say these are my people, or were you horrified? You... No, no, I was I was struck by the fact that a lot of uh, these kids were my age, and yet they were somehow just there. Uh, and uh, I actually, um, sometime after that, I'm not sure how long after that, but I actually decided I was going to run away. Okay. And went to Project Place, which was a counseling center, but they also would, uh, they had housing for runaway kids. And I actually went there and spent a night or two there. And I think the counselor, after we which I found out, called my mom and said, look, you know what? Let him stay for a night or two. He'll be coming home soon. But I met all of these kids who, some of whom were 14, 15, 16 years old, who were just traveling the country without parents. And, and it was, you know, the beginning of this whole sort of youth revolution. So you, you felt something that I felt as well, a need to get away. Yeah. What Can you talk about that? Do you understand that? Because I really don't even yet understand it. But you've done a documentary based on that. What, what about this need to get away? Your parents are perfectly fine, I'm guessing. I'm not yeah. sure it's, it, in my case, in, in a lot of cases, it's something you have to get away from, but it's the prospect of something that is new and different. And I think the Boston Tea Party, which was this club where you could go and hear the Who uh, with Rasan Roland Kirk opening for them for $3 and light shows. And, you know, I think there was just a whole new way of looking at the world uh, that was youth-oriented, it was new, exciting, and I think it became a huge you know, draw for young people, especially when, when uh, contrasted with what was at that point the residual 1950s America of you know, variety shows and suits and ties. And, so, you know, so you felt an urgency to be part of this. Yeah. I didn't quite know how to do it, but felt like getting running away would be step number one. Yeah. <laughs> one window to it, one doorway to it, would be WBCN, yeah. I guess. So how did you become aware of WBCN? And talk about getting on the listener line, because that's a key, key step to do that. BCN was was sort of you know ground zero in Boston and in a lot of ways. How did you first hear the, about it? So uh, I in the eighth grade, I had a, a teacher who decided she was going to take a bunch of us on a field trip. And uh, we went to visit WBCN. And Charles Laquadera gave us a tour, uh, showed us the AP machine and these, the record library. And it was just, you know, I grew up loving radio. And so to actually be in a radio station was amazing. But it just seemed impossibly cool. Just like an amazing place. What were your early impressions of Charles? And was he the same Charles then that he is today? Just very uh, self-assured and hip and, and you know, had a, a very clever way of, of, of describing things. And, you know, we asked him questions and he, he gave thoughtful answers, you know, and he was a very impressive, to a young kid, he was a very impressive figure when, when I first met him. And how did you actually get on the listener line? So um, that was the eighth grade. By the ninth grade, I was in an open classroom a program in Newton, and one day a week we were all supposed to go off and get a volunteer job. Uh, so some people went to, uh, you know, a volunteer at the university or National Guard, uh, you know, uh, head, you know, head offices. Or so um, I had been listening to BCN, and um, I think I just called up and said, uh, "Is it possible to volunteer there?" 
and they had just started the listener line, which was, um, you know, as we talk about in the film, uh, BCN became such a central focus of people's uh, lives that people would call the station when they had questions or if they needed something, and and BCN was very receptive, but it got to the point where people on the air couldn't do their shows because there were so many people calling. And so they set up uh, a line where p- uh, listeners were told, you can call with any question. You need a ride to New York, yeah. you lost your dog, whatever it is. And so I was fortunate. They just set it up, and they needed people to answer the phone. And so uh, I started going in on Wednesdays and answering the listener line. And that's kind of indicative of the time and the vibe. Just it became you didn't just take requests. You were a clearinghouse of oh yeah information on lots of stuff, like drug overdoses and yeah. banned information, and where where can I get this? And as you say, can I get a ride? It was the Google of its time, and 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 we prided ourselves on being able, if not to answer any question, to have a good answer about where people could call if we couldn't answer the question but but we matched people up who needed rides and 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 then i made i i I made a transition not long after that danny Schechter, who became the news dissector at the station but was doing all of the news by himself uh one day when i was finishing up handed me a sony uh portable tape recorder audio recorder and said do me a favor take this recorder push this red button when you get there go up the street to the boston police main headquarters on berkeley street there's a demonstration about the killing, the murder of a Black Panther named Fred Hampton, and ask people, why are you here? Which, of course, is the perfect question for a 14-year-old. <laughs> why are you here? And so I went and interviewed a lot of people and came back, and then he said, well, listen through them and find the good ones, and suddenly I was uh, starting to do news. And then one of the things that I did uh, fairly early on was to begin to to edit these kind of montage presentations which would have music and and comedy and and dixon and you have a lot of um local reporters local politicians complaining about the unwashed mess of humanity on the common it's difficult for anyone who can't wasn't there or didn't see that to know to to understand this divide between the establishment and the so-called hippies Uh, that's it was thousand miles wide can you talk about what happened on the common and how the politicians responded and even name some names of people that are in the show sure. <clears throat> um you know the arrival of the hippies uh you know a lot of young people with long hair and and you know one of the things that's interesting when you look at them is they just look very charismatic there's a lot of young kids playing guitar and sitar and playing frisbee and it looks like a a fun time but this really represented something very dangerous uh, to the city. Particularly, interestingly, Kevin White had just been elected mayor uh, in a very tough race against Louise Day Hicks, who was uh, almost like a neo-segregationist. Um, and uh, White emerged as this great liberal uh, force. Uh, and it's almost immediately after uh, you know, assuming office within a few months, was presented with this huge problem, which was the arrival of, of tens of thousands of kids wanted to live on the Boston Common, and at the same time, people on Beacon Hill saying, look, this is our front yard. We don't appreciate these kids, you know, camping out there. So they were actually living there? Yeah. How full was Boston Common? Oh, it was, it was you know, an encampment of... Packed. Um, yeah, yeah, of young people. And so they, they uh, started trying to enforce a 12 o'clock curfew, and as you see in the film, it resulted in police swinging clubs yeah. and kids getting beaten and arrested. And, and interestingly, and, and 
we didn't include it because it, it got to be too nuanced and how do you explain it, but Kevin White's right-hand person at that point was Barney Frank, a young Barney Frank. Wow. Who actually went before the city council to do White's bidding to say, look, uh, you know, we're going to get these kids off the common <laughs> in a very, you know, uh, a way that, that didn't reflect his sort of more liberal leanings later on. But um, so so that's what happened. But it, it sort of drew the lines. And, and uh, you know, I think a lot of what happened during that era was about drawing lines. You grew your hair long. You wore bell bottoms. You uh, wore T-shirts and buttons and because you wanted to make it clear I'm one of us and not them. And and us was were young people who opposed the war in Vietnam, who believed in uh, smoking marijuana and uh, new forms of um, spiritual expression, and you know, and finding you know one of the things that the film talks about in those days was really this sort of uh, you know what young people were faced with, which was how do you lead a, a good life, a moral life? How do you break away from what had been a very um, you know, traditional 1950s America. And and the lines were drawn, you know. was Did BCN spring up because of this or yes. coincidentally to this? Um, you know, the, the, what happened was Ray Reapin, who was a Harvard a law student uh, through a, a business deal gone bad, ended up with the lease on a, a large uh, building in the South End that had been a, uh, a religious, uh, some kind of temple. And he started, uh, in order to make his money back, playing rock groups there. And it immediately took off, became the Boston Tea Party. And eventually there were bands like The Who and, and Led Zeppelin, and, and everybody really came through there. So uh, but before you go on, you should, it's in the film, and you gave me a little back story. The reason Ray Reapin felt confident in renting out this building is because Andy Warhol and his factory was underwritten in some by the Ford Foundation, right. right? And they told Ray they wanted to do the same thing here. And basically, he was going to be the new Warhol as, as far as the boss of this creative kind of space. Right. But then Ford Foundation bagged out, and he's left holding the lease in this place, got to do something to make some money. He figures, all right, we'll do the rock and roll. He was a businessman right. who somehow got into cool business. Right. All right, so it took off like crazy right away. And and one of the things he did that was interesting was first he brought in a lot of bands that had not uh, you know, played in, in the States before, but he also paired groups, Rasan Roland Kirk, the great uh, you know, jazz musician with The Who, the Bonzo Dog Band with Led Zeppelin, the Almond Brothers with um, the Velvet Underground. He just would try to make pairings of groups so if you came to see one group, you would hear something totally different that you might not be familiar with. But it was just an impossibly cool place. And one of the things that he realized, and he talked, you know, this is, we talk about it in the film, is that um, during this period, uh, record sales went from singles to albums. And um, these groups that people were lining up to see at the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party, um, you couldn't hear on the radio. So kids were buying the records, they're going to see these groups, you just couldn't hear them on the radio. And that's where he got the idea of trying to find a station in Boston that would give him some airtime and and found this failing classical music station, WBCN, and got in, in the beginning just the overnight hours uh, from 12 to 6 in the morning. And, uh, you know, because nobody was listening to FM at that point. Nobody was listening to BCN. And uh, 
he started making more money in those few hours than they were making the rest of the day. And Boom. it quickly went 24 hours. And the, then the folks on the common found this WBCN and the two were wed. We talked about the hippies had come in there living on Boston Common, but it was more than just those hippies. It was a movement. There were, there were lots of like-minded people still living with mom and dad. Things were changing big time. And you had 240,000 college kids in Boston, which was just a huge, you know. And at the same time, an entrepreneur named Ray Reapin had a music venue, and he realized, wow, people are coming here a lot, doesn't it? But that's even without radio airplay. I need to find some station that I can turn into a promotion tool for the music. And BCN is born. I'm going to let you... Do the microscopic walk. I mean, really drill down on the detail. It's the, the birth of BCN. So, so Ray got the idea that, that he could... Uh, FM had just been launched, and really the value of FM was it was uh, without static, and so it seemed like the perfect uh, free, you know, uh, media for classical music. Um, but he got the idea that you could also play rock on FM, and there were a few stations around the country that started to play rock on FM because a lot of people uh, were skeptical of FM in the beginning. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, very popular. So Ray got an idea of what he wanted to do was to take an FM station, uh, have conversational tones, which was very different than the way rock appeared on uh, the radio previously, which was top 40 with a lot of, you know, high-pitched, uh, fast-paced announcers who all had a shtick. Uh, so to have conversational tone, only eight commercials an hour, and play album cuts, which was the huge deal, because up till then it was really, um, you know, two minutes, two and a half minutes per song, and then the same 40 songs over and over again, hence top 40. So Ray went down to the uh, National Association of Broadcasters Convention, he talks about it in the film, uh, to ask people what they thought of his idea. <laughs> and he says they asked him, you know, well, what is your line of work, Mr. Reef? And he said, well, I'm studying law at Harvard Law School. And he said they suggested that he continue in the law field because he had to have been the stupidest human being ever and that there was no place in, you know, American uh, Don't you love when those smug people are wrong like that? Yeah. And uh, I wonder why he went and asked them. I think he just, you know, uh, he had this idea and thought he would, you know, see what people thought about it. it you know, it's a reasonable thing. But to his credit, he pushed forward and... and uh, uh, he got uh, a station that was really about to go bankrupt and got the overnight hours and got a bunch of college kids. Any he, idea how much he paid them? Uh, no, well, he didn't pay them. He just, they gave him the overnight hours. I mean, they're just, they, they, they couldn't sell advertising in that time. So they, they made those hours accessible to him. Uh, and For he, a cut? Yeah. Okay. You know, it was part of the station's revenue at that point. Um, and he went around, literally drove around Boston in a car. And this is the difference between the top 40 mindset and this BCN mindset. Right. Okay. And and drove around town listening to college uh, stations, listening for announcers that he thought had the right sort of conversational tone and weren't trying to be professional in the traditional radio sense. And literally went to college stations, just walked in on people while they were on the air and said, I'm going to get a you know professional station. Do you want to come work for me? And rounded up a bunch of kids. Uh, and they were kids, you know. They were all many of them were undergrads. Which, um, which uh, persons did did he get that way? Uh, well, which DJs? Joe Rogers, who became Mississippi Harold Wilson and later Mississippi Fats, uh, was a Tufts, and his next door 
uh, dorm mate, Tommy Hadges, uh, were both at the Tufts station. Um, uh, those were the first two that he found. And then um, there were others. Mitch Kurtzman was at BRS, the, the Brandeis station. Uh, a guy named Rich Barna, who's in the film, was at the Brown station. But, you know, he that was his source were, were young kids. And he wanted kids specifically because they didn't have a kind of professional approach. and But they knew the music, and they knew about the counterculture and what was going on. Right. Anybody more professional would have no clue about his music. Right. That, that was the whole point. And so uh, they would bring in their records, and the whole point was to play anything. And so they would play jazz or rock or folk or classical or it was really just a free-for-all that had just never been heard on the radio before. It's hard to believe now because you can flip up and down the band and hear almost anything at any hour. What were some of the bands that were big at the time, the, the, the records they would have been bringing in? So uh, it would have been folk music like Tom Rush and, and uh, Spider John Kerner and um, uh, Tom Paxton. There was uh, the whole wave of, of just... The, these amazing blues artists who really had largely played uh, in segregated clubs over the years, B.B. King and Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker, and for the first time uh, both playing at the Boston Tea Party in front of you know young uh, college kids, but also getting played on the radio. So uh, not a lot of rock initially. No, no, the, uh, there was rock, would have been um, sort of psychedelic rock or The Who, Led Zeppelin, uh, Blue Cheer, Jefferson Airplane. Would one Steve jock Miller. play a mixture of these, or would one guy play blues and the next guy play no, rock? You would you would mix it up. It was really uh, it was really you know, cool. People had you know Jim Perry was an announcer known to play more folk and but but generally people mixed it up and it, it was really and and spoken word, uh, the Firesign Theater who were you know a very clever comedy uh, group. And it really was to just mix it up and, and to try to put songs together in a way that made a statement by the, uh, the way that you, uh, the order you played them and what you played together. And would there be any input from any superiors about what you would play? Well, th th there actually were no superiors. Okay, go ahead. The, the station was, uh, you know, really a commune of people. There's some question going back amongst uh, you know, BCN people as to whether there actually even was a program director. If there was, uh, it's clear that the responsibilities of the program director in the early days were, A, if somebody scratches the Doors album, we need a new one. Yeah. And and schedule, you know, sort of who's going to be on when and which... Would Who took on that dirty? Well, the program director, generally. Who was it? Uh, early on, it was, I think, Sam Copper and okay. then Norm Weiner. Uh, Charles Lockwood-Era was for a while. But, but as far as any top-down direction... Uh, there wasn't any. And even to the point of what commercials would run on the station, it, it was all a group decision. They wanted commercials that represented the values of the station. And, in fact, we, we found a, uh, a documentary that WBAI, the Pacifica public station, did on WBCN in 1970. And they interviewed, um, you know, Charles Lacquadera about uh, their advertising policy. And he says, you know, if an advertiser says using our product is going to make you better in some way. We don't want that. Because <laughs> you're fine just the way you are. You know, people want to get away from that stuff. And so there was, you know, I think, um, and so they advertised a lot of record stores and, and restaurants and clothing stores and local, you know, uh, merchants. This is a good time to give kudos to Charles Lacquadera because 
much to Charles's credit, he took that ethos and he fought for it his entire time. As the times were changing and, and becoming more commercial, he fought for realness. He would have meetings, he would stick to his guns with with the bosses, and I'm not sure how many people appreciate that. It's a, And it's, it's cool to listen to you speak, and now I understand where that comes from. Any, at some point, some leadership evolved. When was that? How did that? Was, did that not happen for the scope of this film when you it, were done in '74? It just, you know, uh, the, the station. Um, well, Al Perry, who was an announcer and a salesman, uh, became uh, the general manager. And in the film, you know, there were a number of of critical. Uh, decisions that had to be made that that he made as general manager, and I think he would be, uh, you know, if there was an adult in the room, <laughs> it was Al. But you know, I think it it can be shown that the decisions he made were courageous and 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 really consistent with not just you know, uh, BCN was not only about sort of this cultural thing, but it w- it was also uh, you know free expression was was a tremendously important part of it, and it wasn't just because people wanted to be able to have songs with curse words in them. It, it really had two parts. One of them had to do with the fact that people felt like speaking up against the government and against the war, uh, you know, was an important thing. And if the station could do that, and sometimes artistically, uh, it would involve swear words. A lot of songs about the war and about what was going on had swear words that ended up getting played on BCN. And the other thing was the early days of what is now become, uh, you know, this whole tension between journalists and the government about the release of information. Um, Before the Pentagon Papers, there's an incident that took place in the film where Danny Schechter was in the Harvard dean's office during the Harvard strike. He was the news guy, a news guy. And this was actually before he was uh, started at BCM, but they liberated, as they say, a lot of documents that showed Harvard's complicity with the CIA, with the war, Henry Kissinger's involvement as a Harvard professor with the war in Vietnam. And later, BCN got a hold of documents that were stolen from an FBI office, which showed uh, what became uh, known to the public as the COINTELPRO program, where the FBI was harassing, uh, you know, dissidents unfairly. And BCN read them on the air and, and was a part of an effort to get the information out. And, you know, these were cases where, uh, you know, Al Perry is the general manager was involved in making decisions, you know, to, to move forward on these things that, that um, you know, he felt in the station, I think, felt that it was important to do that. Any repercussions for him? Uh, no. Or the station? No. Uh, you know, I think the station, um, you know, Ray talks about having been pulled down to the FCC once in a while and being, you know, asked, you know, what kind of a deal are you running up there? But generally, no. Uh, the station, you know, was able to stand its ground. And Is Al Perry going to be at this event? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Is he going to be up on the panel? People can ask him questions? Yeah. Is anybody going to ask him about the FBI? I, I Maybe so. I will. Yeah. Okay, or you can. All right. What have I not... By the way, I want to remind you, we're speaking with Bill Lichtenstein, producer and director of WBCN and the American Revolution, which is a documentary film on how radio station, politics, and rock and roll changed everything. By the time I got there in 81, it was more about having fun than it was about making change. 
what other can you talk more about how political it was there must be more you can tell me example wise of the political wbcn well it you know the station started off as did the 60s um you know largely focused uh on music it was not extremely political in 68 when it started but as we point out in the film 1968 was a transformative year and 68 started off with the prospect and and the hope uh, that because President Johnson uh, announced he was not going to seek a second term in office because he uh, fared so badly against the challenger in New Hampshire for the presidential primaries, Eugene McCarthy, that President Johnson backed out, and Bobby Kennedy uh, announced he was going to run, and everybody hoped he would become the next president. And then in in rapid succession, uh, Martin Luther King was shot, Bobby Kennedy was shot, uh, kids flooded into Chicago uh, to demand a, you know, not unlike Bernie Sanders and what's going on now. Kids flooded into the Chicago uh, during the Democratic Convention to demand a progressive candidate, and they ended up with Hubert Humphrey, who was probably the most, at that time, uh, you know, mainstream politician. And then we ended up with Nixon by the end of 68. And, and that's what really, uh, you know, sort of began to politicize, I think, the 60s in the way that, that you know, we now look at it as a political era. Um, and BCN, you know, was was a part of that and, and really helped, you know, stoke that, um, the flames of that. All right, let's break, and we'll have one more excellent segment with Bill Lichtenstein as we talk about his new film. It's new to us. It's not new to you. You've been <laughs> working with it for a while. WBCN and the American Revolution, and there's a big hometown throwdown at the... Somerville Theater, where you're going to show this thing. And I've seen five minutes of it, and you're going to be blown away. It, and there's still tickets. And, and I hope you get one before they're all gone. More in a moment on WBZ. Something's on your mind. You need to talk. Try the radio. Jay talking. Bradley Jay. Right until dawn. WBZ News Radio 1030. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you put the radio on? Sure. I'm coming up to talk. He wants to talk. Let's see what he has to say. Let's turn into a radio show. It's a beautiful night. Oh, what a night. I love this place at night. Jay talking with Bradley Jay. There's no wrong in him. WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ, and we wrap up. We have a final segment with Bill Lichtenstein, producer and director of WBCN and the American Revolution. You'll be able to see the film on Saturday, the 27th, 7.30, Somerville Theater. There are some tickets left. IFFBoston.com. IFF. What is it? International Independent Film Festival Boston. IFFBoston.com. Okay. Now, what's the lesson from all this? The, the success of WBCN and the whole thing. You know, I, I think the lesson and, and the reason the film has really caught the interest of a lot of young people who have seen it uh, in, in screenings that we've done is is how media can create 
social change and how culture can create social change and what's involved in really bringing about uh, the kind of major change that took place during that era. And it involved everybody, from musicians to artists to writers to, um, you know, it, it became a, a really a, a cultural movement that BCN was at the heart of. And I think for young people looking and trying to understand, you know, they look at, uh, you know, situation with the... Um, uh, you know, climate change, or they look at what's going on in Washington and this sort of sense of how do you really have an impact. And I think this is an object lesson of, of how, in a very short, look, in a very short amount of time, uh, not without cell phones or the internet, using typewriters and picket signs, you know, we drove two unpopular presidents from office, ended a war, uh, and, you know, it really was the beginning of all these great transformative movements, the gay and lesbian rights movement, women's rights movement, um, the second wave of, of, of feminism. Uh, and it all happened without all of these amazing tools. Kids today can reach a half billion people through YouTube or Facebook. Yeah, and I wanted to mention that here. You just talked about media can create change, social change. And now it, the, the, it's unvetted. With BCN, you had a benevolent core of people that were at the helm of this for benevolent change. Now that's been circumvented and who knows who's at the other end of that text you're getting or that uh, Facebook post and the forces of evil and the forces of stupidity have just as much power as the, as the, as the good guys and gals. And that's a problem for me. I think that's true. And it's also, it's so diluted like BCN, the audience for BCN included, you know, 240,000 college students. It was really a pipeline right into young people in the city, and there were a lot of them, whereas now it's it's really so diluted. We, we stole a line from, from Apple that we used in a funding proposal we did early on that said, you know, we live in a world today where it's never been easier to communicate but never been more difficult to be heard. And I think if if young people or any of us can take anything away from this film, it's it's what it takes not just to be able to communicate but to be heard, what kinds of messages, how you craft something and, and, and use media in a way that really can bring about change. And, and I think you're right. BCN had tremendous credibility because of what it was and, and what it stood for. But, but I think there was, you know, there was similar, um, you know, Saturday Night Live. It depends on your political right. bent. But there are certainly people in the media uh, who command attention and, and have credibility. Interestingly, interestingly, many of them are not traditional news people. You know, this was, I think, uh, one argument that could be made is, that what started with BCN and this whole idea of putting news in context with comedy and music uh, was an antecedent to uh, The Daily Show, you know, and, and Stephen Colbert. And how is it that a comedian like Jon Stewart could end up as the most credible news person in America? You know, and I think one of the things BCN show was by putting things in context, uh, you know, it, it, it became more credible in a way. Well, this is a big deal, folks. This, this movie is debuted here in Boston area on Saturday night, the 27th at 7.30. Bill will be there. A lot of the names that we've dropped tonight, a lot of those folks will be there. It's a big, big deal. You'll be there. Yeah, and you should be very, very proud. Thank you. You're very welcome. Bill Lichtenstein, producer and director of WBCN and the American Revolution. Thank you. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.